like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5, we'll be looking um, at verses 5 through 11. The title of our sermon this morning is, After You Have Suffered. And the key words for our worshipers in training are humble, resist, and suffering. In his book, Unspeakable, Os Guinness writes, Not all moments in life are equal. Is it any surprise that few moments in life are more equal than those of supreme joy or those in which evil and suffering crash into us and change the landscape of our lives forever? He goes on to tell the story of Gerald Sitzer, a college professor and his family in the northwest of the United States. Nothing could have been more normal than the day on, on which all six of the Sitzers piled themselves into their minivan with their grandmother, Gerald's mother. And they set off for an Indian reservation in Idaho. The Sitzers were homeschooling their children, and since the lesson of the day was on Native American culture, they decided to take a field trip and introduce their children to a powwow at a Native American reservation. All went well. Dinner that evening provided the opportunity to talk with tribal leaders about their project and about problems facing the tribe, such as alcoholism. When dinner was over, the family strolled to the gymnasium where the powwow had started, and they sat next to a tribal leader. He explained the dances that the tribe was performing and the dress that the dancers were wearing. After a long, full day, the moment came when the Sitzer children had had enough, and so they all returned to the minivan and set off for home, tired but happy. Ten minutes later, their world changed forever. A drunken local driving at 85 miles an hour with his pregnant wife next to him, also drunk, jumped his lane and smashed head-on into the minivan in the darkness. When Gerald, dazed, breathless, and in pain, was able to look back at the rest of his family, he was faced with the terror on the faces of his surviving children and horror all around him. His wife, four-year-old daughter and mother were dying, and his surviving children were panicking in the mayhem and chaos. Helpless, the father watched his wife, daughter, and mother all die before him, three generations of his family in a few terrible minutes. Those moments were etched in Gerald Sitzer's mind forever. Carnage, pandemonium, and panic with lights flashing, orders barking, emergency vehicles circling, helicopters whirring overhead, and his children crying and groaning. But already there was the choking grip of anguish, the vice-like realization that darkness had descended and his life would never be the same. His family, as he had known it, had been obliterated. Sixty seconds had changed the world. Whether it's a car wreck that takes out half of your family, 
an accidental overdose that takes out your cousin, a suicide that takes out your friend, or cancer that takes out your wife. We are reminded consistently that death is stalking us every moment of every day. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned against God and brought sin and misery upon themselves and the entirety of the human race, death has reigned in the world. Every single day, you are marching toward your own demise. It is hurtling toward you like a juggernaut. It cannot be stopped for anything. Death and more broadly suffering are non-negotiable aspects of life in a fallen and broken world. They are realities that we must learn to grapple with, to face with courage and faith, and to endure until the Lord calls us home. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12, Peter begins the final section of his letter, and he offers his readers some important words for how to deal with suffering. Specifically, he's writing about how to suffer as a Christian. He says that Christians should not be surprised when they suffer, but they should glorify God and entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. He then offers an important word to those who are elders among God's people about how they should conduct themselves and set themselves as examples for the flock. And then he addresses God's people with a final word of exhortation about how to face up to suffering. So let's read these verses now, beginning in verse 5. We'll read through 11. 1 Peter 5, verse 5. It says, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him. Because he cares for you. Be sober minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings, suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. As we look at God's word this morning, I want to note three things with you concerning the believer and suffering. First, in verses 5 through 7, we will see that the believer is to be humble in his suffering. Second, in verses 8 through 9, we will see that the believer is to be watchful or sober minded in his suffering. And third, in verses 10 and 11, we'll see that the believer is to be patient in his suffering. So we are to be humble, watchful, and patient in our suffering. First, humility. God's call upon your life, believer, in your suffering. Always, but certainly here we see in our suffering, we are to be humble. He says, clothe yourselves with humility. 
Humility should not be an add-on to the Christian life, a minor descriptor of an otherwise complicated person. Humility should be wrapped around the Christian like a winter coat. And this is for all of us. He writes, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility. Christians should be humble people. We should be humble toward one another, as we see in verse 5. And we should be humble before God, as we see in verse 6. Why? Why should the Christian be such a humble person? Why in our suffering should we be so lowly? Two reasons are given here. First, Peter says, it's because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. The way toward humility, therefore, is to see how offensive our pride and arrogance are. Consider what C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, on what he calls the great sin. He writes, The Christians are right. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Other vices may sometimes bring people together. You may find good fellowship and jokes and friendliness among drunken people or unchaste people. But pride always means enmity. It is enmity. And not only enmity between man and man, but enmity to God. In God you come up against something that is in every respect immeasurably immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. Pride, he says earlier in that chapter, is the complete anti-God state of mind. Another way to describe pride is to say that it is vying for supremacy with God. In our arrogance, we seek to dethrone God as the sovereign Lord. And so he stands opposed to us. Pride teaches us that we are, or at least we can be, self-sufficient. That is the lesson of pride. Pride refuses to look up for help because it's too concerned looking down. I love how Lewis puts it. He says, if you're always looking down, you can never see something that is above you. God opposes this way of living. And he invites us to look up. He gives grace to the humble. This should be our disposition in suffering, says Peter. Humbly seeking help from the Lord rather than proudly relying on our own self-sufficiency. Peter says that we ought to humble ourselves under God's mighty hand. Why? This is the second reason. God opposes the proud. Secondly, says he, he will exalt us at the proper time. Brothers and sisters, God opposes the proud not out of uh, some selfish desire that, that he and he alone may have the spotlight to the detriment and the expense of others. No, God seeks the spotlight so that he may graciously turn it 
on others. Yes, in one sense, absolutely, God's glory shall be shared with no man. God is God, we are not. And so God gets all the glory. And yet, in another sense, God has clearly no intention of keeping all of it to himself. He desires to exalt his humble people. You see, God, out of love for his Son, created a world, and specifically a people, the human race, from whom he would, after they had fallen into sin, he would save and raise up out of that race a bride for his Son. God says to you, friends, humble yourself. Take the lower seat. Don't strive to be first. Be content with being last. Don't look out merely for your own interest, but tend to the interest and the needs of others, letting them be counted as more significant than you. And one day you shall have your reward. Humble yourselves and God himself will exalt you. Uh, In the movie A Knight's Tale, Heath Ledger plays a peasant from London named William Thatcher, who lived in the 14th century Europe, and he was given by his father John to a knight, Sir Ector, to serve as his squire. John Thatcher was very poor, and so he wanted a better life for his son. He gave him away, thinking he may never see him again. After William had become an adult, Sir Ector died. This was problematic since he, and uh, specifically his jousting tournament winnings, were the only source of income that William and his fellow co-workers, Roland and Watt, had. So they devised a plan for William to pretend to be a knight, Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein from Gelderland, so that they could continue to eat. Well, it turns out that he was very good and he made a lot of money. The problem was that he was a fake. To compete in these jousting tournaments, you had to be a knight. You had to be royalty, which as far as he knew, he was not. As far as anyone knew, he was not. Now, I'm really sorry to spoil this for you if you haven't seen it, but it did come out in 2001, so I can't really help you here. By the end of the movie, Ulrich, or William, had been found out, obviously. You saw that coming. He's discovered. He's uncovered as a fraud. He's put in the stocks and he's pelted with cabbage. He's spit on, jeered at and mocked. A kid comes up and smacks him in the head who was giving him a thumbs up or something just a few minutes earlier in the movie. He was laid low. But out from the crowd emerges a hooded figure and he reveals himself to be Prince Edward the Black Prince, the future King of England. Now, William had previously shown Prince Edward a kindness in the movie, not knowing, um, well, I guess he did know it was him, but it was, it was a complicated situation. But he, had, he was kind to him earlier in the movie, um, and this was a kindness that Edward sought to repay. His servants had uncovered that William was actually descended from an ancient royal line, and so he knighted him. There, on the spot, Sir William Thatcher and restored his honor and his name. You see, it was only when William was forced to give up the act, stop pretending to be someone or something that he wasn't, that he then became and was in the right place 
to be exalted to the rightful place of honor. And so it is for us. It is only when we are humble and low, not dependent upon our, ourselves and our own wisdom. It's when we're humble that we need fear no fall. And only then may we be exalted at the proper time by the Lord himself. And lastly, on this point of humility, how is it to be done? How do we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? Earlier we said that pride seeks to dethrone God. Pride seeks, uh, he sees no lack in self, no want in self. Pride is self-sufficient. And so humility is the opposite of that. Humility is reached, Peter says, by casting our anxieties upon God. Instead of trying to solve all of your problems yourself, cast them upon the Lord. Instead of thinking that you and you alone can meet all of your needs, throw yourself upon the kindness of God. And Peter gives you this final word of encouragement to do so. God cares for you. And we've gone on and on about the difficulties that we faced in 2020. And 2021 hasn't been very easy so far either. So I won't belabor that point, but what I do want to belabor is this. God cares for you, believer. He cares for you. Is life just too tough right now? Cast your anxieties on God, knowing that He cares, of you, cares for you. Think of it. God is not some distant deity watching from afar, at times amused, at times aggravated. God is personally and intimately involved in his creation. And he cares for you. Nothing can befall you that does not come from the hand of your faithful creator who cares for you. If you are in Christ this morning, God gave up his only son for you. Will he not also with him graciously give you all things? Friends, God opposes the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. And the grace is not some substance. It is himself. God gives us himself. And so let us seek together to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of our caring God in all our suffering. Second, in verses 8 and 9, we are called by Peter to watchfulness or sober-mindedness in our suffering as God's people. Why? Because our enemy, who is the devil, is prowling about like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Consider three things about the nature of our adversary here. First, he's prowling about. He is stealthy. We must be watchful because the devil prowls about in secret. He doesn't want to give himself away until it's too late. Like the lion hunting the gazelle, if he gives himself away too early, the prey will be gone before he has a chance to pounce. He doesn't present himself to us as an enemy. He sneaks up on us to catch us caught off guard. This is contrary to the popular version of Satan we get in red tights with horns and a pitchfork. 
I trust most of you are familiar with the verse in 2 Corinthians 11 where Satan is said to disguise himself as an angel of light. See, cheap theology in Hollywood have led us to believe that Satan is easily recognizable and that you should be able to spot him and his minions from a mile away. Movie after movie depict um, people uh, moving into obviously haunted houses. Blood drips from the walls, things scurry in the attic, doors open, close, and lock seemingly by themselves, and someone ends up starting a killing spree, usually beginning with his or her family. But think about how Satan is described here. He says, Peter says to his readers to be watchful, to be sober-minded, to be aware of the enemy's schemes, which I think he lays out plainly for us. He says it in verse 9. He says, remember or know that you're not alone. Your brothers around the world are experiencing the same kind of sufferings that you are. You see, I think the point here is that Satan wants you to think in your suffering that you are alone. Peter says, watch out. Satan is like a lion whom you must resist. How do we resist this lion? Resist him, he says, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. What weapons of war shall we bring to this battle? We bring with us the knowledge that we are not alone. We must be sober-minded and watchful because the devil wants to trick and trap us. He wants us confused and isolated. He wants us alone. He wants us to think that we have been abandoned. He wants you to think, brother, sister, that the pain you are experiencing right now is totally unique to you. He wants you to feel the weight of your sorrows as though you are the first person in history to bear such a weight. But you aren't alone. As you suffer, you are joining the ranks of countless men and women who have gone before you. And there are millions who stand with you now. So here we see that we must be watchful in our suffering because of the enemy's stealth. We see also we must be watchful because of his ferocity. He prowls about not like a a tame and gentle house cat, but like a roaring lion. Do not be misled. Satan is not someone to be trifled with. Too often it seems some Christians believe that Satan, because Satan has, in the words of Colossians 2, been put to open shame, we tend to think he can do us no harm. But there is an entire army of darkness arrayed against you, believer. Lions are not house cats. Terrible as house cats are. Lions apparently are worse. Lions are wild beasts that can crush you. That's what Satan's like. That is the power he still wields, defeated though he is. In comparison to your abilities, to my abilities, Satan is far smarter 
stronger and conniving. And so are you, are we on our own able to withstand the onslaught of the evil one when he seeks to convince you that you are all by yourself? Brothers and sisters, please do not underestimate him. This is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2 that we do not want to be unaware of the devil's schemes lest he outwit us. But we can rejoice because though he is a ferocious adversary, God is greater still. But third, considering why we should be watchful in our suffering, it's because he seeks to destroy us. Our enemy does. This roaring, prowling lion seeks your harm. He is seeking someone to to devour, and so we must be watchful and we must resist. Resist, brother. Resist, sister. With all of your might, with all of your heart, Think of Mr. Standfast in part two of the Pilgrim's Progress when Madame Bubble came and offered herself to him for a night of illicit ecstasy. What did he do? He lifted his voice and cried out for help. He stood fast. He resisted. And he did so many times. He stood his ground and remembered that he was not alone and that help would come. And eventually, she left and help came. We must resist the temptation to isolate. We must do so by remembering that we are not alone, but we stand with the multitudes who have sworn allegiance to King Jesus. Our suffering, therefore, should produce humility, as we said, and watchfulness in us. But it should now, in the third place, also produce patience. Consider verse 10. After you have suffered a little while. That's it. That's all this is. This suffering is but for a little while. The devil aims for us to forget that we are not alone, to forget that we have one another. But another temptation that the devil often throws at us in our suffering is that he wants us to think that our suffering will last forever. He wants you to think you are alone and this pain will never end. But it will not, dear Christian. It is temporary. Whatever pain you are experiencing now, believer, and I mean whatever pain, it will cease one day. Can you wait with patience just a little longer? Just think of our dear sister, Teresa, who went to be with the Lord on Friday. After years of fighting, struggling, suffering, She closed her eyes in the first few minutes of the morning on January 8th, and when she opened them, she saw him. 
him whom her soul loved, her king. And she knew in a way that you and I can only imagine now that every single word of this passage is true. Around 60 hours ago, her temporary suffering gave way to eternal, boundless pleasure. She is now forever and always completely out of reach of the roaring and prowling lion. She has been brought safely into the heavenly kingdom. The God of all grace who had called her to glory in Christ has himself restored confirmed, strengthened, and established her. In an instant, she stood and walked, perhaps ran, into the arms of her beloved Savior, who gave himself for her. And brother and sister, the the same goodness awaits you. Your suffering shall not last forever. Your pain shall not endure through the ages. Your sorrow and sadness shall not persist for eternity. You shall, like Teresa and countless millions before her, one day close your eyes in death simply to open them to behold such a one as you have never seen. You shall behold the Lord Jesus in all his splendor and glory. With the marks on his hands, his feet, his side, as an eternal testimony of his love for you. He suffered an eternity of hell on the cross and was left all alone so that prideful, lazy, impatient people like us may be delivered from our transgressions and from their punishment so that we can be with him forever. A question perhaps should be raised at this point concerning our sufferings though. What is the point? Sure, let's be humble, watchful, and patient when we suffer. But why must we suffer at all? We understand that sometimes we suffer because of the things we do ourselves. Peter says in chapter 4 that if I murder someone or or act as a thief, I will likely suffer consequences for those actions. But that's not what Peter's talking about here, though. The suffering here is brought about by others or things outside of my control. This perhaps is being insulted, as he says, for the name of Christ. Or it's being physically attacked for the same. Perhaps this is losing your home to a hurricane or your child to an overdose. Your mom to cancer. A friend to suicide. This may be conflict in your marriage or at work. What's the point of this stuff? It may not last forever. But maybe we should ask why it lasts at all. Peter answers this above in chapter 4. We noted this in our introduction. He says, don't be surprised, brothers and sisters, when suffering comes your way as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
Rejoice as you share in Christ's sufferings and be glad when his glory is revealed. For when you suffer in his name, and I think we can also say not just for his name, but in his name, he says you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Paul says something similar over in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says that we can patiently endure the sufferings of the present age without losing heart because we know that they are working in us as the Spirit of God works in us an eternal weight of glory. Your sorrows, friends, are making you fit for heaven. You couldn't bear it now. If we were instantly transported to heaven just as we are, we would likely be incinerated and blasted into oblivion by the sheer might and majesty of it all. But your sorrows, your suffering, are expanding your capacity to see and to savor the glory of God, the God of all grace. He's not the God of some grace. He's not the God of most grace. He is the God of all grace. He is full of grace. There is no grace apart from God. And it is yours to have in Jesus Christ as God prepares you for eternal glory with Him. And so there is still more suffering to be endured, brothers. Sisters, but we can endure it with hope, humbly, watchfully, and patiently, because we know that God is in it preparing us to be with Him forever. Let me close with two brief words of exhortation here. If you're here and you don't know the Lord this morning, would you turn to Him now? Would you look to the one who perfectly endured more suffering than you and I could ever imagine? Would you find life and help and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ? Turn from your sins and turn to the Savior. The world is broken, but he is bringing about its restoration and he's beginning with his people. And he invites you to be a part of his kingdom, to be delivered from this present evil age, from the kingdom of darkness, to be transferred to the kingdom of light, to the kingdom of the Son of His love. He is yours if you would but have Him. And to my fellow believers, be patient, brother. Be watchful, sister. Be humble, Christian. And the God of all grace will Himself restore confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is not something that he outsources to someone else. He shall do it himself. He is doing it himself. May he receive glory and honor and might and blessing, and may the dominion of all the cosmos be his forever. Amen.